0: hello and welcome to bonnets at dawn the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th 19th and 20th centuries i am your host lauren burke and i'm your host hannah chapman And this is the first episode of our new series on lost books, unpublished work, and marginalized voices. So over the next few weeks, we'll be discussing the works of Sarah E. Farrow, Pauline Hopkins, Dorothy Wordsworth, Mary Shelley. And we have an episode about how women are devalued and people of color are lost in the rare books world, which is super good. And there is just so much good stuff in store. Now, this week we are discussing The Woman of Color by Anonymous, which I've had on my nightstand ever since Trisha Matthew brought it up during our Mansfield Park read-along. And um, I finally, finally, finally got around to reading it when I saw that Carrie um uh, was talking about it online.
1: Kerry received her PhD from Trinity College, Dublin, and has taught at universities across the UK and Ireland. She is the co-editor of Romanticism, Sincerity and Authenticity with Tim Milnes, is currently working on an edited collection on Jane Austen and is completing Myths of Mastery, Traders, Planters and Colonial Agents, 1750 to 1833 for the University of North Carolina Press. And in 2017, she was the visiting scholar at the Yale Center for British Art, where she began a project on representations of enslaved mothers. And if that ain't a CV, I don't know what is. I know. Oh, that means resume in, Eng- in England. Do you know that?
2: <laughs> I know that. <laughs> did that translate? <laughs> it did. <laughs> okay, well, it is a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um but before, I mean, I, I, I will give a synopsis, but I just want to say, first of all, that the plot synopsis is just really important and unusual in that it features a uh, woman of colour as its main protagonist and most of the words in the book are her words um and Lyndon dominique who's done the introduction for the broadview republication of it it was out of print for such a long time uh you know over 200 years he points out that you know in british literature in european literature the figure of the black woman is pervasive in fact he's written about there are many images. We can think of Imoinda um, in Orinoco and Afrobenz Orinoco, and then in all the spin offs from or- Orinoco, George Coleman's opera, um, there was Claire Durace, de Duras' Eureka, who has a Black Senegalese woman character. So I suppose I want to say before we get started with the plot um, is that there's this odd status to Olivia Fairfield, who is our heroine in the novel, in that she is unique and not unique at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I to do with the ways in which black women in European literature and culture are everywhere and nowhere they're they're, they're they are everywhere if we really look and Dominique's um introduction summarizes that but also she's erased mm-hmm. and not made visible I mean, It can even go back in some ways to Shakespeare's The Tempest yeah and think of Sycorax as a sort of indigenous black mother who's displaced and erased by prosperous white power so that 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 sort of plot is very interesting for a repeated cycle and a repeated structure Mm
3: -hmm.
2: of how black women are um present and not present in literature and then there are real women that we know of like mary prince um the enslaved woman who tried to get um, gain her freedom and Mary Seacole. So she's there, but she's occluded. Um, so when we come to the woman of color, we have a first person narrative in the epistolary form and in the form of letters. And that's, as everybody knows, a very um, important 18th century form um, that gives us the direct words of Olivia. And she's writing her first letters on board a ship. Uh, And she's performing the Middle Passage in reverse, if you like. She's going back. She's being sent back to England. Her father has passed away. And in her opening letter uh, to her um, nurse or her governess, she tells us that the story of her life, her mother was an enslaved woman, Marcia. And the details are really shocking because um, the anonymous author does not shrink from giving them to us. Um, Fairfield has bought Marcia as a child. We're told that explicitly. And we're told it's quite disturbing because the story of Olivia's birth has to be put within the romance plot mm-hmm. of 18th century fiction. And we're told that um, Marcia fell in love with her master. And that's really troubling as well because we can think of how difficult it is to, to discuss these relationships. Does love pertain in, in the system of enforced um, enslavement. Wow. She loved her master. She had a grateful heart. Um, and so Olivia is born out of that union. Um, and she, her mother dies um, with um, Olivia's birth. In giving birth to me, she paid the debt of nature and went down to that grave where the captive is made free. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting because we're left in no doubt that Marcia, and I'm truly emphasising Marcia here so we don't erase her as the plot's origin in many ways, Marcia, in Olivia's mind, has remained a captive, Mm -hmm. even within the union that she had with Fairfield. So Olivia has been, now Mr Fairfield has passed away, and in his will he has made it a condition that Olivia can inherit and be his heiress, but she must go to England and marry his cousin. Um, uh, Augustus uh, Merton and you correct me if I get anybody's names wrong (laughs) it's one of those complex plots and and Olivia, so in a sense it's an arranged marriage and it's it's very much a standard 18th century financial arrangement. On the ship Olivia meets two people, Mrs Honeychurch and her son George um, Honeywood, sorry, Honeywood and Honeywood falls in love with Olivia on board that ship, which is another startling event in the 18th century novel, this woman of color. Olivia combines her name, sort of expresses the color tone of her skin, mm-hmm. Olivia Fairfield. Yeah. So she's she's fair and brown and mixed, um, but she is certainly read as a black woman when she comes to England, very much so. Um, when she arrives in the Merton household um, she realizes she has an enemy in the form of her other cousin's wife Mrs Merton. Augustus um, seems to come to admire Olivia and and they do get married but it turns out that actually Augustus had a previous marriage he has assumed his wife is dead she's not really dead <laughs> it's a complicated plot mm-hmm. Um, and whenever it comes to light that his wife um, is still alive, uh, Angelina. Olivia releases Augustus to go to his first true love, Angelina. She takes on the mantle of widowhood. So in her mind, she was Augustus's true wife. George Honeywood then comes around in the plot again and says, please marry me, I love you so much. And Olivia amazingly and astoundingly says no. And the end of the plot, and this is what's so fascinating, we might talk about it later, is Olivia returning to Jamaica as the mistress of her father's slaves. There's another plot twist which allows her to inherit. And she goes back, a wealthy, independent woman, not married to anybody, who is going, she tells us, to work for the emancipation of her slaves, but she also calls them her kin. And this refusal then of the romance plot at the end where there's no, she refuses marriage is astounding. We know that, for example, in Jane Eyre, when she inherits her uncle's fortune from Madeira, the plot then allows her re- to return to Rochester as a sort of equal
3: right. <laughs> partner
2: and they can get married. And, and Jane is not losing any of her independence then. She's not capitulating, um, but here, in this novel, Olivia gets to keep her money and to not get married. And we can read that in different ways. So it's a complicated plot, but that's the general summary. I'm so glad
0: that you brought up Jane Eyre, too, because I love that book so much and have a lot of complicated feelings about that book. I will acknowledge that. But okay. the ending, that is something I want. I want Jane to just take the money and run. Okay. Oh, interesting. I would, uh, so it- I would love that. And this happened here. And I went, What? Yes, yes. So yes.
2: good. Well, and there's two, but there's two ways to read. I mean, I read it as really powerful and positive, but I was really amazed. My students, some of my students read it as her being denied. The woman of color is denied. The love of the romance plot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, interesting. And Isn't that interesting? And mm-hmm. I think that the truth at the same time, she refuses it and she's denied it. Mm-hmm. Um, And and it's also almost a way in which she remains, again, outside. And um, I I think you're right, her her agency, her ability to to manage any kind of reform is greater outside of marriage. We can also think of Dorothea in Middlemarch, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when she when she ends up marrying Will, she kind of she loses she loses her inheritance and she loses her power but she gets her love (laughs) so it's interesting to compare all these different plots and what it means for women It's true I I
0: wonder how that ending too was received like in the day as well
2: Yes, well that was one thing that's quite astounding, Um, Patricia Matthews talks about this in her uh, summary in her review initially of the novel was that it was highly it was was reviewed in three prominent Places I think it was just regarded as highly unusual, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, when I, when we think back to the contemporary moment, I do wonder if it would have been shocking for Olivia, a woman of color, to end up with two white husbands to an original audience. Right, that is a very good point.
0: Can I just say too, in the way you summarised it, that um that should be an like that should be an adaptation. Like, that is a great period drama
2: series with all the twists I and the turns. It really is. It, it absolutely. What a good point. It, and, and there are some other sub-stories going on, the Angelina sub-story, sub but there are so many dramatic moments that would be rendered um, wonderfully clear to us, I think, in an, adap- in an adaptation. Olivia's walking around Bristol. I, li- I used to live in Bristol, and I know some of the streets she mentions to wander around the Nouveau Riche, of Bristol harvesting all their money and goods from the incoming ships that are bringing back the booty mm-hmm. <laughs> from the colonies. Um, and But just, yes, the plot, the way the plot twists and turns and gives us, you know, the, the very ending of it. She's on the ship again, going back across the middle passage mm-hmm. as a free, unmarried woman from her own choice. Yes. Actually, um, yeah, she says, "I my passage is taken tomorrow I set out. Um yes. So she's not quite aboard the ship yet. But but you have an image of her being on that ship. Mm-hmm. Um we will revisit Jamaica. I will zealously engage myself in ameliorating the situation um of her of what she calls our poor blacks. Um, because she is, she has no power to emancipate them as yet. Mm-hmm. Or does she? Or you know, another interesting question is her complicity and her involvement. She cannot. The other thing, the thing she cannot be outside of is enslavement. Mm-hmm. That is the structure Olivia cannot circumvent. Mm-hmm. One way or another, she's going to be an heiress of her father's enslaved people.
0: Right. She's going to benefit.
2: Yeah. It's.
0: Are there? Um. Mm-hmm. What are the like scenes or quotes that? really resonate with you?
2: Well, they're probably the ones that, that people draw attention to quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, let me see. There is, there is a moment, I think we were just talking about it as we prepared, where when Olivia enters the festival household of her cousins, the Mertens, um, Mrs. Merton is intensively jealous. And I, I like to think of Mrs. Merton as a Karen figure. If we can yep, use this, that makes she, sense. Is <laughs> she is there to police Olivia, let Olivia know who you know her place, a uh, reminder of her racialized identity, mm-hmm. and put her down at every moment. Um and they're sitting down to a meal, and a servant enters with a large plate of boiled rice, and Mrs. Merton tells the servant to put it in front of Olivia. And she said, I understood that. People of your dash complexion. I thought that you almost lived upon life, said Mrs. Merton. So I ordered some to be got. I've never tasted it. And so she's trying at the sort of the the ritual of the British n- n- dining room. She's trying to make sure that Olivia is being treated in her mind as, as a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, Augustus Colors. And and Olivia deals with it phenomenally, and which would be so great in the period drama, as you say. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thank you for studying my palate, but I assure you there is no occasion. I eat just as you do, I believe. And then she pauses. Though in Jamaica, our poor slaves, my brothers and sisters, are kept upon rice as they, their chief food, but they would be glad to exchange it for a little of your nice sweetened bread here taking up a piece of baked bread in my hand. And this is just amazing too, because Olivia flips it around to reveal the true morality. Mm -hmm. She rejects the false economy that's given to her by Mrs. Merton's racism. And she says, actually, you are the degraded person here because you allow um, the white planter class, allow their enslaved people to subsist on nothing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: and to treat them in this way. Um, and, and she also, I think that I, I eat as you do, is also a way of noting her, again, her complicity. I've been allowed to become like you. So she's also mm-hmm. laying bare the the falsity of what um, the British planetary class wanted to tell us all was a natural system mm-hmm. of, of hierarchized race. So that's a really fascinating scene. Um, There's another scene then just really coming after that where George, her little cousin, Mrs. Merton's little boy, comes in. Um, I think this might resonate with a lot of um, readers of this novel who are not white (laughs) in various ways, because George runs in and and says, oh, you are dirty to Olivia when he just game, because he has no... Frame of reference for non-white skin, right? Other than as a dirt, and I mean, this is where the novel is quite astounding because it doesn't it goes there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and it uses the child's voice to be able to to give voice to the to this sort of um, taboo way of interacting mm-hmm. interaction between um, w- white and black people, and and Olivia again says, "Oh, do not check him, Missus Merton." Infant, his, his infantine simplicity is charming. So she says, I'm, I'm not insulted. And she said, my love, you will lose that beautiful character of your mind one day. And she says, come here, fellow. I promise I will not kiss you. And she takes them on her lap. And she says, do you see the difference in our hands? And George says, yes, I do. Mine looks clean and yours looks not so very dirty. So what's happening there? Liv is really forcing him to look at skin colour at a close range mm-hmm. and sort of defamiliarise his, his horror of it, really. Okay. I'm glad you think it doesn't look so very dirty, but will, I, will you be surprised when I tell you that mine is quite as clean as your own and that the black woman's below and that's her own servant, Dido, is as clean as either of them? What nonsense is that you're telling me now in astonishment? And... And she, he, he, Olivia asks him to ru- try and rub the dirt. And anyway, she proves to him that it's skin colour. Mm-hmm. And then George said, um, I will kiss you if you like. Thank you for the wish, my dear, and for the favour. And I pressed his cherub lips to mine. So again, I'm not sure what your reactions to that scene are, where it's like a breakdown of this racialized fear that whiteness has
3: mm-hmm.
2: of it, of others. But um, I don't know what your own responses are to
0: that. I think a couple of things. I think one thing, what's shocking about this book is that you have these like microaggressions that you still, as a woman of color, get today where I'm like, oh, these are, I think, you know, I was expecting some really overt racism. But then when you're getting examples like these, you're like, oh, these are still, Things that we go through today,
2: devastating but also prevalent.
0: Yes, and so I thought that was that was actually really quite shocking when I was reading it. Where I was like, oh, it's just it's so
2: relatable. Yes, yeah, <laughs> just yes. heartbreaking. Yeah, these moments on a page, and mm-hmm. uh, I want—I mean, my again, my students have mixed responses to that. I, I think when I first read it, I thought, oh, this is a wonderful deconstruction. Olivia is breaking down. Mm-hmm. Again, the fake lies of of racialized discourse, and you know, she's just making George see something that's something very simple, which is that some skins are different colors. Mm-hmm. But my student, um, a woman of color, said, "No, George is just exoticizing her in the end. When he kisses her, he it, it's not. It's a superficial mm-hmm. change. It, 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 you know, it's not. And, and of course, we do know how also." the the woman of color elicits fear and horror but she also elicits desire Mm -hmm. and and everything associated with exoticism
0: yeah yeah absolutely i also am struck by her like response as well and that um just being so aware and then always like on guard right when you when you just have to all when you're in a situation like that when you know so you know we had talked a little bit before we started recording about how she came from an environment where you know it was raised you know she was used to seeing people like her yes. <laughs> and then suddenly she's come to overwhelmingly white england and now you're yes. very much on guard yes. and you have to be prepared for all of these situations and she's you know she's got some very good responses to them <laughs> I'm like yeah,
2: impressed yeah. with her, how she handled the bread. like Incredibly. I know it, absolutely not. And, and you feel that tension and you feel that work. She has to do all the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah, she's not going to be sort of idly musing out the window like a romantic heroine right. in another novel, is she? She's, she's having to strategize. She's having to look at herself from the outside all the time. Mm-hmm. She's having to maintain her feminine grace, which is demanded of the 18th century novel and of, of her society. As uh, you know, she can't be the angry black woman. Right. So she still has to operate within within white norms of manners and civility. And she has to do all of this with some effectiveness. It's quite astounding. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean that brings me to you know thinking that um Lyndon Dominique um offers us some really good evidence in his introduction that the novel was in fact written by a woman of colour because it mm-hmm. seems to have <laughs> the truth of lived experience (laughs) I
0: I absolutely think I mean my personal opinion is that it has to have been or a woman of color had to have been consulted for these feelings because
2: I'm like if I'm still feeling it
0: 200 years later then
2: yes exactly well Dominique has done the work to say that um anne wright was the daughter of andrew wright an english planter her and her sister were both born in england um and when he dies he wants them to inherit his fortune but in his will they must marry english men to inherit so again there's the plot structure there Mm -hmm. there are there are um congruences in terms of location and where the book was published but certainly the writing itself Mm -hmm. um because we can look at period literature, we can look at abolitionist poetry for the ways in which white authors attempt to empathize with enslaved people or give voice to people of color and nothing quite gets into what you've described, the, you know, the, 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 the way she has to strategize and think through all the time. And the author, whoever has written it, has got these set pieces to walk us through these moments Mm-hmm. and to also to offer us a model for how to deconstruct them yeah. and it does strongly suggest as if that could only be written by somebody who's possibly lifted or carefully carefully observed it. yeah
0: i mean people still are getting this wrong today
2: when you yes. know yeah huge yes. obviously
0: own voice <laughs> is a huge conversation within the publishing industry um no. so yeah reading it i was i was like oh yes this has to be this has to be a a real woman of color uh, Mm -hmm. writing this. And I loved that introduction. He actually did sort
2: of lay down that there was
0: precedent for this.
2: Yes, yes. He's done the archival research there. Um, So it's, um, and yet it was published anonymously. And that's another, maybe another argument for why, because if, if, you know, this would be a time when an author would choose to hide Mm -hmm. her identity for all kinds of reasons, as we know.
0: Now, uh, going back to your students, how do they react? How difficult is this one to teach? Do they get into this book?
2: I, I taught it twice um, in the last year, and that was my first time teaching it, actually. Um, because it's really as wonderful as the book is, I think I have to gather myself I'm a little bit like Olivia to teach it. because mm-hmm. you have to, We have to bring um, here in San Antonio, Texas, I have a diverse student body um students who experience these kind of microaggressions every day students who who don't <laughs> um, and and talking about race is always uncomfortable um it's, it's it's not easy to handle so I taught it twice last year and the students absolutely loved it I think I think like you were saying earlier it's such an, a refreshing plot it has drama um, yes, it's not, you know, full of total thrills and spills, but I think the unusualness of it and, and just to see Olivia in these scenes taking charge of these moments is enough of a driving force. Um, but it stimulates an awful lot of debate. And the other reason they really like it is because it, it connects, as you've said, so much that's happening now, so much in political discourse about racialized identity, particularly here in the US, um, but, but so much to do with... Um, their own versions of these kinds of experiences and and to see how we still are parsing out identity in these very um limited hierarchized ways and just to see how you know people of course still have to iterate through power structures all of this mm-hmm. you know in an 18th century model is is, is incredibly powerful and, and I, I taught it on a, on a gender course and and the overwhelmingly female and um, not, not entirely but cohort where I really love that plot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: For them that that the, the race intertwined with the gender, just you know how, you know what's it like to be independent mm-hmm. is, is a refresher as well.
3: I
0: also love that you brought up the work of it because I think that there is this feeling that um, people of color when they're when they're teaching <laughs> literature that deal it has a racial component to it that this is just, it should just come naturally to you you should just be able to do this work and that it doesn't you know you don't have to like steal yourself to do it you know
2: mm-hmm. steal oneself prepare oneself professionalize oneself and i think this is an, another wider discussion you know that it takes a lot of work
3: mm-hmm.
2: olivia has done her work to think carefully and and yes, absolutely, fielding this kind of material, especially in the kind of volatile situation that we're not. I, th- I think I'm going to be teaching it on a coming fall course I've hummed and had, but I, I think I will, Um, partly because of the whole debate around Kamala Harris,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which is showing and revealing uh, America's hysteria
3: mm-hmm.
2: about race. And I think it's become really, really important to show them a model of a Caribbean black woman <laughs> mm-hmm. that comes into a white space um and and to expand i think i think I think one thing students are also um happy to find out about is that caribbean history to enslavement which is very much uh, absent on the american curriculum right you know uh, it's sugar plantations and cotton fields. It's, there's, there's, a, there's a there's a more um, you know there's the vast early Americas as early American historians are starting to call it. If we if we cut off America's history, if we cut off Britain's history from the Caribbean, it's no history at all, right. And I think too, it's like
0: I mean something that we sort of struggle with, Um, And we've had a lot of conversations around the past few years. It's like, it's just, it's important to see representation in the literature, not only for people of color, but I think for white people as well. Absolutely. Um, To know that we've always been here. I think this is something I've been kind of saying for years, like, we're not new. (laughs) No,
2: completely. There have always been black people in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, And the other thing about Olivia is that she is not... An enslaved person. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. To, you know, I think possibly a lot of uh, American culture know, know all about Uncle Tom's cabin. right? Uh, and even Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, the trajectory is out of slavery.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, as I said, Olivia's origins are absolutely from her enslaved mother, but she herself is a free woman. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: so glad you brought that up too because I think in this series we'll also have an episode on Charlotte Fortin okay. and her diaries. And um, I haven't quite finished all of the work on that yet. But I one thing that I did highlight immediately was that first edition of the diaries that was edited. Um, the white male editor was questioning how much was important because she wasn't enslaved. So he was like, well, do we need all of this? She wasn't really enslaved. So is she really yeah. part of like this african-american narrative and i'm like that's how things get lost that's how really? you know we <laughs>
2: yeah so <laughs> back to the kamala harris debate you know leaving aside the politics politics of it the race politics of it it's almost this you know authentic blackness to white america is only equivalent to to slavery right that's a shocking equation um, and so, I mean, one thing the novel does is it opens up the idea of a black diaspora mm-hmm. and a global. I mean, there there are the journeys, the the, the this journey across and back. Um, it, this is a this is a transatlantic novel. Uh, Olivia's history is not contained within national boundaries,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and it's not contained within one within any one clear straight timeline there's also the east india company and um, sir marmaduke we're, were brought to visit through olivia this hideous nouveau riche uh, family um uh, marmaduke ingot has amassed a fortune we're told via the east india company and they're all going to see his gaudy pagoda that he's just built and another wonderful thing is that the things that we're arguing over today in terms of cultural heritage and English cultural heritage has actually been looted <laughs> right. or copied in, in a rather um, untasteful way mm-hmm. from Britain's um, imperial hijinks.
0: So tell me about this Facebook group that you've started, because you do want more people to teach this book.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I think, I think as I said, it's so speaking to our moment um, where blackness can't be fixed or oversimplified and, and, and should not be. And it really uh, works through that. Um, I, a few of us were, so they're all, as we all know, we all have our various Facebook groups for our special interests, or many sure. of us do. And the one I, and my, many of my academic colleagues were in was, was an 18th century group. And we started asking questions about getting ready to teach this novel, about a year ago, I think, um, And it was sort of amassing its own little sort of side conversation. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would just set up the Facebook group as um, a way to archive all the articles and points of conversation Mm -hmm. and, and links to historical sources that were going to help us to teach this novel. So it was a way to work communally as we prepare to teach this Mm -hmm. and as you said earlier to share strategies to to hop up in terms of how to teach this with critical race theory or through anti-race pedagogy which i'm very interested in but again um academia likes the single genius model but it's not going to help we need to work more collectively
3: yeah
2: so the facebook group was to set up um, to, to, to forge a space for those kind of conversations. And, and so the people globally ask questions about how, you know, how did you teach this thing? Or how, we've had that conversation on the Facebook group about how students read the plot ending or how students read the George re- trying to rub her skin off. And, and then also people might've read a different article mm-hmm. um, or one, one Facebook member was taking their students before COVID hit to, on a field trip to see, Uh, a pagoda in England that looked like the kind of thing that Marmaduke Ingot would have built. So, again, you know, and when I taught in Bristol in the University of the West of England, I certainly took my students on field trips to Bath and down to see the Colston statue so they can see their built environment around them as, you know, through an 18th century lens. So that space was there to, to build up. And really, since May since the Black Lives Matter protests have been going, it's become a lot more as well a site for uh, gathering um, sources on discussing race more generally in our 18th century curricula mm-hmm. um, and on really important conversations. We're having this conversation now, but there have been so many wonderful conversations happening on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially space being given to black critics and Black writers, so I've been able to listen to Hortense Spillers and Saidiya Hartman and and Kinesia Lubrin, the poet, and and to say, well, actually, let's break down a few disciplinary boundaries here. Mm Can contemporary Black poets be taught alongside this novel? Yes, actually, very much so. Mm -hmm. Um, Can contemporary Black black artists work be taught alongside this?
0: that's, so, yeah, that's very cool. And then what can be taught alongside that or what uh we're, I mean, we're encouraging everyone to give this a read, but yeah. we do want to, you know, add on the materials to like, just yeah. you know, give it context. So any suggestions that you have for books, films, mm. movies, articles, yeah. I've already said film, but yeah.
2: <laughs> the wonderful thing is you said about, um about the, how this would make a wonderful adaptation. There is the wonderful film, um, Bell, mm-hmm. the 20, I think it's 2017 film. Um, we can double check that, that looks at the real life person, Dido Bell, who was Lord Mansfield's niece. And Lord Mansfield made the famous ruling mm-hmm. in in which he said that the air of England was too pure to be breathed by slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, but that meant that there, was, there were no laws in England that pertained to slaveholding because England was conducting all of its slave and planting activity in the colonies. Right. But when that came to impact on some a real person like Mary Prince, she still needed, she could leave her owners the woods and they had no legal right to get her back. But if she wanted to travel back to Antigua to her husband, she would then be arrested and re, re- enslaved for illegally uh, exporting herself as property. Mm-hmm. So that's, that status, okay, you might not be able to hold slaves in England, but slave status still pertained in the colonies until emancipation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dido, the Bell, Dido Bell was a real person who was the niece of lord mansfield who made that mansfield decision and of course many awesome readers have noted that mansfield park Mm. might also take its title from lord mansfield so i'd certainly recommend watching that film because it explores again it's through dido bell's eyes and it's through her experience um and it brings up a lot of historical detail that pertains to the zong um case where the insurers were horrifically reimbursed for turning over their cargo of live people into the ocean. So that's a wonderful film to watch, watch alongside it. And then there's also the, the famous um, portrait of, of Didobell and Elizabeth Murray. That's in the Sconne Palace. Um, and to look at all the work, um, Sarah Murdon has some wonderful blogs on this um, painting and they're trying to date it a bit more precisely, and Gretchen Gerzinger has just edited a collection of wonderful essays on black people in Britain um, more recently. Um, I would also gesture people to um, some wonderful work by, by black critics. Um, I, I use idea Hartman's beautiful essay, it's a heartbreaking essay called Venus in Two Acts, mm-hmm. which asks scholars and readers questions about how we approach the silence of the archives in terms of the fates of millions of black women and Marcia, Olivia's mother, can exist as a character in this book but in real life there are no archives of of Marcia's voice and lived experience. It's always through the master's documents, it's always through a captain's slave trading journal or the journal of John Steadman who went and had um, you know enforced affairs, rape victims who were black women, what he calls a Suriname marriage Mm -hmm. with a black woman. So we don't get the experience of black women in the archives from their point of view. So Sadia Hartman um, asks us how to read these lives through archives when the violence of the lives they already lived is overlaid by the violence of the primary documents written by their murderers and their Mm -hmm. enslavers. The barracoon, the hollow of the ship, the pest house, the brothel, the cage, the surgeon's laboratory, the prison, the cane field, the kitchen, the master's bedroom, they're all the same place. And in all of them, she is called Venus. And so it's a way of redeeming or navigating through all the death that these lived lives and on what they have to tell us. So I think it's a wonderful essay, Venus in two acts, for making us mindful of
1: The weight of what we're dealing with when we encounter the novel. I gotta say, I loved the line. I can't, can you say line when it's an interview? I love the quote, (laughs) We're not new. And I just wanna like amplify it again for the listeners at the back, Lauren. We're not new. And by we, I don't mean me, I'm very white, but I do mean (laughs) black people in Europe. Not new. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. You completely exploded. My brain, 100%. Oh, good. Thanks to Carrie for that, really. I feel like (laughs) she did most of the exploding. (laughs) I think it's interesting because authorship is something that we talk about a lot on this show and the different ways women's authorship specifically is just challenged, like all of the Mm -hmm. time. You know, this couldn't have been written by this person because they wouldn't know about that topic. Like, I'm looking at you, Mansfield Park, as an abolitionist text deniers. <laughs> and right. I was also really interested, Lauren, when you said that um, specifically you saw your own experiences in there. And so you can't imagine mm-hmm. it not being written by a woman of color. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I very well could be projecting, right? Like, I will always allow for that on the show because literature is personal, yeah. right? And there's just I feel like, you know, you can't you can't help but do that at times. But I did strongly relate to this character and have even experienced my own version of some of these scenes. And that's really what made it such a great read for me. Um, Strangely, I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Uh, There's a quote with regards to Mrs. Merton. And Olivia says something that I'm totally getting it wrong. But it's basically like, <laughs> whoa, why am I letting this racist like get in my head? Mm hmm. And um, I believe she actually says morally inferior, but she means she means racist guys. And it's it was it's so applied to the situation I was in. Like I was just putting way too much stock in the opinion of someone who was morally inferior to me, and I should just just you know brushed it off. I'm brushing it off, Olivia. Good advice from 200 <laughs> years ago. All of that said, it is not a perfect book, right? right. I mean, that's. That's the thing. Um, I think the novel is really quite hindered by the format.
1: Yeah, um, we, we both said that um, when we were talking about it off air. That um, there's a reason books aren't written in <laughs> epistolary format mm-hmm. anymore, right? And
0: there are definitely some pacing issues with mm-hmm. this book. I think there's space given to a lot of scenes we don't we don't even need to to give that much thought to, um, but. I do think that the bones are good and the story and the history is fascinating. And, you know, just there are some great passages that give you so much insight into what that time period was like, not just for women of color, but, you know, for everyone. And I was really taken by the passages that related to sort of marriage and the marriage contract, because what's interesting about this book compared to a lot of Books that we read on the show, like 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 an Austin book, really, is that you do really feel like this woman is a pawn or a piece of property. Mm-hmm. And um that's probably why I liked the ending so much. And this is also one of the reasons why I actually think this would be a great adaptation, because I think too often we do adapt books that we love so much and they maybe are really just the ideal. And they're already in the ideal format in a sense. Yeah. But here you have something like that has, again, like I said, good
1: bones and you can improve upon. Also, some of these scenes are set in Bristol, like surely some local production company in the wake of that Colston statue getting torn down, guys. I'm just saying like opportunity is there for a little like Clifton, women of color, Regency drama
0: I think so. I mean, it's a good like visual story. There's like, there's action, there's interesting characters. It's not something like, I kept thinking about um, like Wives and Daughters the other day, Mm because I was like, okay, that adaptation is hard. That's a really internal book. But this one, I think is quite visual. So um, I am just, I am recommending this book, but I'm recommending it with like, just keep that in mind Mm -hmm. that it's not perfect. But, you know, I think it's fascinating. And um, I will admit that at first I was super bummed that I couldn't find this text online for free, which we like to do because we do like to send this out to, you know, people in our Facebook group and get feedback and whatnot. But this edition from Broadview Press is really worth the coin, Um, especially because that introduction is fire and all of the work that Dominique did um, sort of trying to track down who the author was
1: I just think is it's fascinating. I will say as well that Mansfield Park does come up a lot in the introduction to the women of color and there were a few points that I did want to bring out for discussion because I was just thinking about them for a long time after I read it. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the introduction which like Lauren said was written by Lyndon j dominique it says uh, white british women writers initially usurped the discourse of slavery in order to shed light on their own gender oppression and only offered focused resolutions about the treatment of women slaves towards the end of the campaign i think the reason i was thinking about that so much is that during our mansville park read-long we were discussing fanny price's complicity in the slave trade and whether we need to question fanny's role as the moral center of the novel and that line from the introduction specifically the word usurped kind of had me questioning jane austen's intentions with mansfield park and Mm. kind of grappling with that was she shedding light on a topic she felt strongly about or was she using usurping the imagery and information associated with the slave trade to discuss gender issues solely and Mm -hmm. maybe that's one of the reasons that there is so much back and forth about it we question fanny price as the moral center of mansfield park but maybe within our discussions of it uh we should be questioning austin as the moral center of that discussion do you do you know what i'm saying like yes i feel like i'm wearing a tinfoil hat when i say that but for me I like to think of myself as pretty woke guys. <laughs> 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 I said that for a face. Cause I, do you know what I mean? I'd like mm-hmm. liberal. I try and be an yeah. intersectional feminist. Like I'm very much a lefty. And so my Jane Austen fits my ideals. And I know right. very vocally that the right also like Jane Austen and she fits mm-hmm. their ideals too. And it just, I think that, Exploded my brain because I was just like, maybe it's more complicated. Uh, so, in the interview, you and Kerry discussed Olivia's complicity with the slave trade and how she benefits from it, but also identifies with her brothers and sisters in Jamaica. And because we were questioning this in Mansfield Park, and I just referenced my own excellent point, <laughs> <laughs> uh, would we consider Olivia to be the moral center of this book? Because we questioned it with Fanny. And I Mm -hmm. just... She is, right?
0: Yeah, I feel like it's undeniably Olivia. Yeah,
1: and it's meant to be. It feels like she's intentionally meant to be the moral centre. And for me, I found that Olivia had this, like, level of self-awareness that is lacking in Fanny Price Mm -hmm. and maybe lacking in Jane Austen. I just, you know... And lacking in me as a white reader of Austen, I think that's the, for me, this is the thing that I'm really thinking about a lot, because finally I've got a book that allegedly, or we don't know, but we suspect was written by a woman of colour, set at the same time, having the same conversations that Mansfield Park is having, and just, well, like, where, where do you place yourself, where do the characters place themselves, where is the author placed, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just, I think there's a lot of themes in this book that I think that Austen was trying to explore in Mansfield Park, but it gets lost in Austen's whiteness and in the heteronormative marriage plot that we are going to talk about later this episode. Uh, I think it's also worth pointing out that Dominique doesn't expressly identify Austen as one of these authors, or Mansfield Park as one of those texts. She just kind of says that at the start. So maybe, again, the intent was not for Mansfield Park to be considered in that but how can I question one and not the other because she goes on to say the black woman's presence in the 18th century is literal and pervasive she's written about caricatured painted commented on and sympathized with at all social levels but she's never known Dominique also points out that though Mansfield Park published eight years after the woman of color was never critically reviewed by Austin contemporaries It's highly revered now for its subtext about colonialism, slavery and empire, whereas the woman of colour attracted enough notice at the time of publication to be reviewed three times in contemporary journals. Uh, The reading public were aware of it. Leading literary journals were discussing it in a way that can't be said of Mansfield Park. And again, I just think it's so interesting that the one less popular Uh, and less known in its time has survived, while the other, arguably written by a woman of colour on the same topic, almost is forgotten. Mm -hmm. And Dominique also points to a plot similarity with Jane Eyre, which was published 40 years later, when she says... A transatlantic marriage arranged by the will of an ostensibly benevolent white paternalist that disempowers the dark-skinned colonial woman, subjecting her to what seems to be a life in perpetual, legally sanctioned, white male domination from the colony to the metropolis. I just, you know, here we have this like authentic telling of a story that is just hinted at in so many of the books that we've read on the show. And I will stop talking soon. Thank you for enrolling (laughs) in my fictional university module in which we teach the women of colour alongside Mansfield Park, Jane Eyre, and maybe we can throw a wide Sargasso Sea in there, Lauren. What do you think? I still haven't read it. You can take that class. (laughs) (laughs) And just if you haven't listened to it and you've listened to all of this, you should listen to the Mansfield Park read along. It's like the perfect wine pairing to this episode if this episode yeah, was a cheese in my opinion
0: <laughs> you always think about
1: that what if this episode was a cheese what if would this, it be oh, Borsan. it would be like what well, a roulade like a soft cheese mm. i want it to be a goat's cheese because i can have that without taking tablets with mm. um some kind of garlic and herb swirled into it because it's like the layers and the detail and it oh. makes your mind bendy there you go and the Mansfield Park read long was a season, so technically it's a bottle of wine. So why not drink a bottle of wine and eat a wheel of cheese and listen to all of it? <laughs> Always good advice.
0: Um, I actually want to go back to something that you just said about the woman of color being reviewed in its time and then forgotten. Because, I mean, again, I just want to reiterate that this was sort of like... The thing that was really driving me for a lot of the authors and um, books that we chose for this season, um, they're books that were highly reviewed in their time, that were popular, but they've just been squeezed from memory. Mm -hmm. And how and why that happens is just fascinating to me. So, you know, too often, and I think even on this show, we've given a blanket reason, right? Just like, oh, because of sexism or because of racism. Yeah. And then there's some people that just go, because those people didn't exist, which is not true. But (laughs) um, we are really going to get into some specifics with a few writers this year. And I'm just super excited about that. And I mean, I just we should go back to something that Nikki Payne said last week on the show, which is the canon is political. Yeah. Yeah. That could have been the thesis for our season, actually. It's It's not too late. It's not. (laughs) subtitle. Now, um, one thing that Carrie did mention that was actually cut from our interview was this essay by Bridget Fielder that explores the woman of color and its relationship to the famous portrait of Dido Elizabeth Bell and her cousin Elizabeth Murray. There is such a great line in this essay. Um, It says, Pairing the portrait with the novel allows us to enter into useful confusion about who is Black, how, where, and with relation to whom. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that line. Good stuff. Uh, Bridget has a book coming out that I want to pair with our passing reading, actually, when we get around to doing that, probably next year. And um, yeah, she's just someone you you guys should be following on Twitter. She's great.
1: There was another bit that um, I really liked that I think spoke to the conversation you and Kerry were having uh, about the ending of the book. And I want to read it out, but it's long. So maybe you'll read it. Maybe you'll cut it. I don't know. Uh, it. In light of the text, female relationships, I advocate what might in some senses be called a queer reading of the woman of colour. This is not to argue that these relationships verge on the erotic or the romantic, but that my reading of female friendship might be considered queer in the potentially radical act of deprioritizing the heterosexual relationships that dominate discussions of this and most 19th century plots surrounding mixed race protagonists refocusing on olivia's relationships with women rather than men allows us to look beyond the mixed-race heroine's hypersexualization and toward a fuller picture of her gendered racialization shifting focus away from relationships with white men we can then rethink the mixed-race protagonist's relationship to blackness we might thereby better understand the novel's conclusion in which olivia and dido embark across the atlantic returning to jamaica i really yeah i loved the emphasis that was placed on deprioritizing heterosexual relationships within these novels mm-hmm. and you know well you know it relates to me because i'm always like i love kissing novels <laughs> like I love can... an, a heteronormative relationship in my 19th century <laughs> literature. I like Things Smith as well. I just like all the kissing.
0: I think <laughs> that um, you can though get swept up in romance mm-hmm. and feelings for characters. And so I do I did relate to that. I, I did really love that section of the essay as well, because I was like, oh yes, it did allow me to sort of see I think this marriage as a contract
1: in a more clear manner, I think. Yeah, and it's just, as well, not to like bang on loads about Mansfield Park. There's a a lot of relationships in Mansfield Park and we spend a lot of time talking about Fanny and Edmund, but actually, you know, there's a widow, there's a divorcee, there's a single woman, there's the unmarried younger sister. There's all of these women that have relationships with each other um so austin is doing something there it's just interesting because i feel like we almost talked about it at the top of this episode but her heroines get married for -hmm. love and then it's the side characters that enter the contractual relationships and so the thing that's interesting about the woman of color is that in like pride and prejudice you've got charlotte lucas marrying mr collins but she's not the heroine of the book so it's happening Mm -hmm. but she's not Whereas in the woman of color, it's the heroine that's because of the position she's in being a woman of color, like, does she have the option of a love match? Like, is that even on the table for her in England? And, you know, and and so that and that's the surprising thing with Augustus is that she does fall in love with him.
0: It's something that I wonder if Austen would have explored that with Sanditon. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not the heroine of the book. That is a side character. a side character
1: yeah yeah so and fielder, fielder does go on to say that olivia's insistence on remaining single involves a radical reproductive choice as women of color's childbearing was often dictated and even forced within the white patriarchal system of enslavement Olivia ultimately mm-hmm. rejects the social reproduction of Englishness, whiteness, and empire, and embraces kinship with the African diaspora of the colonies. And she goes on to say that the decision to return to Jamaica affirms that we ought not read figures of racial mixture only through their orientation toward white relations and Anglo society. Yeah. And I loved that. Because it's so easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And that's, that's how we're Another taught. reason <laughs> why I like the ending as well. Yeah. I thought the ending was great. It's so quick mm-hmm. as well. It's just like, oh, man, I am coming home. You know? Yeah, it's I'm coming so, home. I've got I've
0: got the money. I'm that fine. That short letter. It's great. <laughs> you know what's also interesting about the end? I mean, I would like to see the sequel which is another sign that I think it's, like, a good book. You know, like, the bones mm-hmm. are good, right? Like, the writing needs work. But I at the end, I was like, oh, wait, I do want to know what happens next.
1: Yeah. Is the thing. But um, maybe we should adapt it into a TV series because then we can base yeah. season one on the book and season two can just do what we want to do. And what happens next. Because that sort
0: of, that... um. This thing happens a lot in a lot of the books that we love, like North and South and Jane Eyre, um, where you get the money. Suddenly, the heroine has got the money, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and she's equal now to the love interest, in a in a sense. Um, but we don't get to see that, like, that girl spend that money. We mm-hmm. don't get to see, like, right. what they do with it. And that's, like, the great, I think, shame for me of uh, North and South. Like, I just want to see Margaret's, like... Year of like being an heiress
1: and being yeah. crazy and having fun. She wouldn't. Margaret Hale is she up. None ass. of these people would. would have <laughs> None fun. of these people would have a good time. <laughs> 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 Name one of these people that is having a nice like. Who's going on holiday?
0: All right, guys. So that wraps up our discussion about the woman of color. We will post. Um, some threads on Facebook, because I do know people have been reading this book and they've got thoughts and they want to discuss it. So look out for those. Um, next week, we're coming at you with some Mary Shelley goodness. Very excited about this episode. We're going to be talking about Matilda, which is which is an interesting one. It's an odd one. So stay tuned and
1: uh, come hang out with us on the internet. Where, where do people do that how do people do that hannah you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn